you're listening to the Dietitian Cafe, brought to you by New Outra, where we discuss the world of nutrition and dietetics. My name is Harriet Smith, and I'm a registered dietitian and founder of HRS Communications. The Dietitian Cafe is a podcast for other healthcare professionals to learn from and expand their horizons within the world of nutrition and dietetics. We meet a variety of healthcare professionals on the podcast to discuss many areas of nutrition, from studying to academia, clinical to industry, to the NHS and freelancing. In our last episode, we spoke to the authors of the recent landmark review paper, Exploring Dietary Strategies for Remission of Type 2 Diabetes. In today's big dietetic debate, we're going to form part two of the discussion, where we explore whether diabetes remission is realistic outside of research settings and how it can be achieved in clinical practice. For today's episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Alison Barnes and Will Hadfield. Alison Barnes is a diabetes specialist dietitian and lead research dietitian for Newcastle University's diabetes remission studies, including the well-known DIRECT trial. Alison has spoken about direct and diabetes remission at numerous national and international conferences and has advised NHS England in planning their low-calorie diet pilot programme. She's also Diabetes UK clinical champion and sits on the judging panel for the annual QIC Diabetes Awards. Will Hadfield is clinical lead dietitian at Xyla Health and Wellbeing and co-founder of We Nutrition UK. Will has a background as a diabetes specialist dietitian, working in the NHS, not-for-profit and private sectors. He also has experience in academia, which supports his passion for innovative and evidence-based education, which enables long-term behavioural change whilst informing research. In this episode, we'll be talking about whether diabetes remission is realistic for everybody and how it can be incorporated into your clinical practice. We'll also chat to Alison and Will about their roles within diabetes care and the challenges that they face when it comes to helping their patients to achieve remission. So without further ado, it's my great pleasure to welcome you, Alison and Will, to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having us. It's great to be here. Hi, Harriet. Thank you so much. A pleasure to join you. Thank you both. So we're going to mix things up a little bit today for people who've listened to the podcast before. Normally we have a round of quick fire questions at the end of the podcast, but today we're actually going to have them at the beginning. So I'm going to come to you first, Will, and I'd like to ask you, is there someone that you would recommend that our followers um, follow on social media? Because I know you're a big, a big advocate for social media. Yes, I am guilty of a little bit of social media. Um, I have to have a time on my phone to stop me spending hours on it. Um, so I would say, obviously, We Nutrition UK. Um, and then I would also recommend at DSG underscore BDA for the British Dietetic Association Diabetes Specialist Group. Um, and then also I'd just mention um, at Carbs and Cals as well, because their uh, founder and writer, Chris Shea, has just won the BDA Outstanding Achiever Award, um, which I think is just fantastic acknowledgement of all the hard work that has gone into Carbs and Cals. Brilliant and huge congratulations to them. I know it's um, an invaluable resource for a lot of dietitians. Alison, are you a big user of social media or not? I'm probably the opposite of Will, I have to say. I um, I try not to. I, I feel like my life is happier um, without too much Twitter in it. Um, I have I have the odd look when I hear that that something's going on, but um, in all honesty, I don't think I've ever seen anything resolved 
or um, resolved amicably on there. So I kind of I like to have my discussions and my debates in in this kind of forum. Um, but I would echo, and I think Will's Will's um, completely said that the organisations I would recommend as well. Um, and definitely, you know, huge congrats to to Carbs and Cars because that was a game changer when when that came into to diabetes care. No more uh, someone trying to describe, you know, the portion of rice that they'd had. Thank goodness for Carbs and Cars. Brilliant. And Alison, whilst we're on the topic of, of food and portions, this is obviously the Dietitian Cafe. And if we were to cast you off to a desert island, what would you choose as your favourite food or your last meal? Oh, wow. So, yeah, I'm terrible. So I'm usually the person, the last person to order off the menu because I've kind of narrowed it down to about five choices. I really love loads of different things. But if I, I it, it was a toss up really for me between not very similar, but between um, between an aubergine and some venison. And I think, you know, if I was on the desert island, the protein, obviously, but I think my favorite would be um, some smoky aubergine dip. Absolutely delish. Lovely. Well, maybe we can give you both as a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I don't know if they go together, but we'll make it work. <laughs> How about you, Will? Are you a big foodie at heart? Absolutely. Um, I don't think I've met a dietitian who isn't, you know, um, but very similar to Alison, you know, I my favourite type of eating is picnics. Um, so I guess like, you know, favourite cuisines would be anything that is sharing love tapas menus um, because then I just get to try everything um if we were to take it down to one food maybe maybe cheese do love cheese it just goes so well with everything (laughs) totally with you on the on the food platters because then you you don't get FOMO either you don't get food envy so yeah definitely the best always tastes better off other people's plates (laughs) (laughs) especially dessert yes (laughs) Brilliant. And my last question to you, Alison, tell us something that most of our listeners won't know about you. Um, okay, so I there's a couple. So one's kind of work related, I guess, and that is that I, I've lived with um, type 1 diabetes myself um, since the age of eight. Um, I was diagnosed, so I kind of have a, have a bit of a, a patient perspective um, when it comes to things as well. The other one, though, which is a bit more embarrassing, is that I, I used to be the manager of an all-you-can-eat buffet restaurant, so I'm kind of trying to make amends now. <laughs> what kind of all-you-can-eat buffet was it? It was Tex-Mex, but I have to say they used to, you know, they used to make a lot of the stuff themselves, so that was kind of a saving grace, but they were very big plates. <laughs> you use the carbon cows bit for portions there then <laughs> hopefully now they do <laughs> and how about you will what do what do most people not know about you um probably um i don't know this is a really tricky one i think uh probably that given the choice i would be in bed by about nine o'clock every single night i just love to sleep if, if I'm given the opportunity to nap, I will definitely nap. <laughs> well, we'll make sure that this episode is finished well before then so you can get your, your full <laughs> night of kit. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for, for answering our quick fire round. And, and that brings us really nicely into my first question to you both, which is, could you tell us a bit more about how you got into dietetics? Um, Alison, you just mentioned that you've got some personal experience of having diabetes yourself. Is that what led you into a dietetic profession? 
it actually isn't. So it, it was it, a lot of people think that would be the case, but it, it wasn't really anything to do with that. I kind of took a took a circuitous route. Um, so I had an interest in food from, from restaurant management. Um, and then I um, in my, in my twenties, I had it was actually I don't want to put a downer on the podcast, but I, it was I had a, a really challenging few years, and I actually lost my mum and my dad um, to to diseases, so cancer and, and heart disease, and and both of which I didn't really understand that much at the time, but obviously really really implicated in terms of of diet. Um, and that led me on a route. I nearly became a radiographer. I had a, I had a place um, on a course. And then I discovered a, a job description. It was actually for a Macmillan dietitian. Um, and I was really drawn to the mix. Um, a, it was more biology than physics, which would probably suit me better um, in terms of my level results. Um, but also the, you know, the, the mix of the, the psychology, the biology, um, actually you know seeing people talking about food all of that um and so that so I was a mature student and I decided um with my inheritance money that I would I would put myself back through university so um did an undergrad in human nutrition and then a postgrad dietetics um and and still there now which I think my family's very relieved about because I had quite a few different um different career choices along the way Absolutely. And it's very interesting to hear how your earlier life experiences have really shaped where you've got to today. Um, I'm sure your family would be very proud of you as well. So. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I would say with, with diabetes that was when I, when I was on placements and I was talking to people who had diabetes and I just I really loved speaking to them and and kind of seemed to seem to strike a chord and be able to, to make a difference. Um, and so from that point on, I just kind of that was I think that happens sometimes on placement, doesn't it? You kind of know which direction you want to go in. Um, so, yeah, completely not what I was expecting. Um, you can see Will nodding away in the background. So, Will, was that the same for you? Did your placement really shape your um, ambition to go into diabetes? Absolutely. It was It was the speaking to people that really spoke to me. <laughs> it sounds really strange, doesn't it? But it's it's just, I find that in when you work in sort of, long-term conditions like diabetes you have that relationship with people that is a real privilege um, that you don't really find anywhere else and you know sharing that journey with someone and supporting people on that journey is just I think it's you know it's a really special thing um, and I saw that happening and I was like wow you know I, I really want to be part of this and so going along the same lines what Alison was saying you know it's it's the science, it's the biochemistry, it's the numbers, but then it's people's lives as well. It's, you know, really understanding what makes them tick and and how you can influence that and get the results that people want. You know, doing the work that we're about to talk about, you know, people come back and they say it's life-changing and to feel like you've been part of that is so rewarding. Um, so yeah, that's how I ended up in diabetes. How did you end up in dietetics? What led to you becoming a dietitian in the first instance? Um, I, I would say it was a bit of an accident, but then looking back on it, not really an accident because my mum is a chef and she still cooks around the country today. Uh, my gran was a nurse. Um, so I was surrounded by these you know, strong women who were caring for people with food. Um, so it kind of came very, very naturally, sort of almost subliminally to me. 
Um, I enjoyed science. I knew I wanted to work with people. And that's where I ended up. I, ju I just, you know, came to dietetics and it was like, oh, this combines quite a lot of things I like. <laughs> I think that eureka moment happens for a lot of us. We've been trying to figure out at school, we like science, we're interested in medicine, we like food, and then suddenly someone mentions to you a dietitian and it all clicks into place. That was certainly my experience as, as well. So um, thank you very much for sharing a bit more about how you've both got into work specialising as diabetes dietitians. Now, for this episode, of course, we're focusing on remission of type 2 diabetes. And Alison, you've been heavily involved with the direct trial, which some of our listeners may or may not be familiar with. So could you begin by giving us a brief overview of the direct trial and tell us more about what it aims to do? Yeah, sure. So, so DIRECT stands for the Diabetes Remission Clinical Trial. Um, and DIRECT is a study um, that was funded by Diabetes UK. And it brought together the work of, of two professors. So Professor Roy Taylor at Newcastle University and Professor Mike Lean at Glasgow University. So Professor Taylor had done some earlier studies um, seeing the results of, of bariatric surgery and that, that diabetes, type 2 diabetes would almost go away um, even within a few days of, of the surgery. And he um, tried to replicate that with a, with a, low a very low calorie diet um, using shakes and vegetables. And his initial, they were quite small studies, but they showed that, that actually remission could be achieved in this way. Um, but there wasn't any significant period of follow-up. They were, they were proof of concept studies. Um, and so he put in an application to Diabetes UK. Um, Professor Lean in Glasgow had um, worked with the, the counterweight team to develop an intervention that used low-calorie diets in a primary care setting. Um, with the aim to achieve um, a greater level of, of weight loss than you would typically see with a lifestyle intervention. So they were aiming for about 15 kilograms weight loss um, based on the idea that for people with a higher BMI, that level of weight loss would, would show a, a greater benefit in terms of comorbidity. Um, and he put in an application to Diabetes UK. So I always say it was a little bit like the X Factor where they say, oh, well, you know, you, you, you're good as solo artists, but actually we'd like to put you together as a group. And that's that's what happened with Direct. So Diabetes UK brought us all together um, and, and that's where Direct started from. So Direct is, is what's called a cluster randomized control trial. So, so it's the GP practice that was randomized either to control or intervention as opposed to the, the individual participant being randomized. Um, and it was designed to see if, if an intensive dietary intervention um, that, that involved a, a total diet replacement could be delivered in a primary care setting where most people receive their diabetes care. So it wasn't done um, in a research facility like a lot of nutrition studies are. Um, we did it in people's own GP practices um, with practice nurses or dietitians um, delivering the intervention. Um, and it was everyone was followed for a period of, of two years. Um, and the, the results were, um, were quite impressive from a, from a clinical point of view. So, so just under half of people um, at one year were in remission of type 2 diabetes. And that's, so that's an HbA1c less than 48 on no diabetes medications. We'd stopped those at the very start of the intervention. 
Um, and that was still 36% of people um, at two-year follow-up. Um, and so that showed that, that actually, you know, with, with quite a pragmatic study design, um, that, that it, this kind of intervention could be delivered in primary care. Um, and obviously, because it was a research study, we had, we had lots of other things going on as well. So the Tyneside participants came um, and had some scans done on their liver and pancreas to look at things like the, the, the liver fat level and the, the level of fat that was in the pancreas as well. I'll maybe touch on that um, a little bit later. Fantastic. Thank you for giving, you know, such a succinct overview of what has been an incredible study. Um, I'm keen to hear a bit more about what your day-to-day involvement as a research dietitian on, on the direct trial involved. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes. So um, direct was actually, it was my first um, research role. So I, I was an NHS um, diabetes specialist dietitian up till that point. And I, I actually had, you know, I was on secondment as a band six. I had my um, my permanent job interview set up and, and I was the, as sometimes happens, the, the only applicant. So I was set. And then this study came up um, and I'd heard Professor Taylor talk about it previously um, and it was on my doorstep and such a good opportunity. So I, I basically became a research dietitian, not because I wanted to be a researcher, but because I was so interested in this particular research. Um, so so there, were, there were three of us um, on direct, so myself in Newcastle and then Naomi and George up in Glasgow. Um, and where research associates um, is our title on the study. Um, and one of one of the main differences, I would say, from from clinical care was that actually having time to read research papers as part of your post, um, obviously having, you know, a really good knowledge of the literature is hugely important. Um, I was used to doing that, you know, after work or, you know, going to bed and things like that. But actually um, getting familiar with the literature um, in, at the very start. And then really throughout the study, we were, um, the, the dietitians were, were integral to the delivery. Um, so I recruited, with Professor Taylor, recruited all the GP practices in Tyneside. Um, I consented um, all of the participants to the study, um, trained the practice nurses in the intervention. So in Tyneside, it was all practice nurses that delivered the intervention. Um, we had a mix of, of practice nurses and dietitians in Scotland. Um, and mentoring the, the practice nurses as well. So I was on hand for any advice. We did some, some joint consultations initially until they were confident in being able to deliver the intervention themselves. Um, where people were, were struggling or, or had more complex dietary needs, I was able to offer um, support and advice um, from that point of view. Um, a lot of delivering shakes um, throughout the, the total diet replacement stage. Um, all of the, the data entry, um, so the practice nurses would record the data and, and the dietitians were, were entering that. Um, we were, we were um, members of the trial management group, so there would be regular meetings to review how things were going in terms of recruitment. Um, we had quite a number of of changes where we needed to submit um, for, for ethics approval to make a change as we went along. Um, and the dietitians were involved in all those discussions as well. Um, and then when it came to, to the analysis part, um, the analysis was done separately, but we, we were responsible for, for all of the queries that came back making sure that everything was, was accurate um, and, and helping to write um, the research papers as well. 
Um, and then since the, the um, results were published, um, I've spoken at an awful lot of conferences about remission um, and about the, the results of direct as well. So it's been a, it's been a hugely, hugely varied role. And, and we were, you know, I had the opportunity to continue to do a diabetes clinic alongside as well. So to keep keep one foot in the door in terms of, of clinical practice. Um, so, yeah, really, really enjoyable and just and really, really worthwhile um, to be involved in. And I think for having come from working in diabetes to to being able to do some research that then feeds back in um, to dietetic practice is it's kind of come full circle. And that's that's something that's been absolutely amazing to, to be part of. Gosh, I really don't know how you fit it all in, especially running a running a clinic alongside all that research. <laughs> I've looked back. I use, I, you know, I said I don't use Twitter very much. I still use a paper diary, and I've looked back on the diary from some of those times, and I don't quite know how how we managed it all either. But um, no. it was well, fun. Yeah. No, it certainly sounds impressive. Now, you just talked about how you really um, valued doing research, which fed back into dietetic practice. So I'd like to come over to you now, Will, to find out a bit more about your work at Xyla Health and Wellbeing and also We Nutrition. So perhaps you can just begin by giving us a bit of an overview as to what your roles are at those organisations. Sure, absolutely. Um, so at Xyla Health and Wellbeing, I'm the clinical lead dietitian. And in my role there, I have oversight of all of the nutritional content of our programs. So our programs include uh, diabetes remission programs like the NHSE low calorie diet. And we also have a program called Rewind in Northwest London. And then we also have adult weight management programs. Uh, we have the diabetes prevention program and we have family health programs as well. Um, in that role, I also lead the MDT on development of new programs, and then work really closely with our business team, operations, marketing, through the creation, piloting, mobilization, and then carrying on to sort of analysis and review evaluation. Um, so it keeps me really busy at Xyla Health and Wellbeing. Um, we've got a great team. Um, so, you know, I, I just want to point out that it is sort of, it's a small town that makes things happen there. Um, and then at We Nutrition, that's my freelance practice. So I hold that with one of my very, very good friends, Emma Jones. And that's kind of like our little evenings and weekends work. So it allows us to do projects and work with people that we wouldn't normally get to in our day jobs. And um, so we have one-to-one -one consultations. Uh, we do projects like menu analysis, we've written books, um, consultations with companies. Um, so, and it's all sort of diabetes and uh, weight management focused as well. So it's really exciting. It's, it's very much our, our passion project. Um, let's us do lots of different things. That's really interesting and, and um, funny how both of you obviously keep up your research and your clinical side of things. So again, I don't know how you juggle it, Will. Um, it's, yeah, it's great to have you both here today to find out more about how you're helping patients both through research and your clinical practice. So I, I'd like to um, build on what Alison was telling us about with the direct trial that she's been involved with. So have the findings from that trial helped to influence the work that you're doing clinically, Will? And if so, how? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, I say this in the nicest way possible, but Alison and her team have got so much to answer for. You know, we, we really wouldn't be where we are today without direct. And, you know, that really laid the foundations for everybody else to sort of take and, and move forward with. And even now, sort of, what are we? three, four years from direct, you know, I'm waiting for the five-year results to come out, um, <laughs> which I'm sure is, is not far away. But um, even to this day, you know, if, if we get a query come in um, around one of our low-calorie diet programs, it, we always go back to the papers and we go back to our conversations, we go back to our notes um, and we say, right, what did they do on direct? How, you know, is, is there an answer there? Are there any clues to an answer? And let's talk to somebody. Um, so hugely, hugely impactful and still very, very relevant uh, today and will be going forward as well. How closely do you follow the protocol that was used at the direct trial at Xyla Health and Wellbeing? Is it um, replicating the protocol exactly in terms of the shakes, the duration, or have you modified it to some extent for your cohort? So when we build programs, there are loads of factors that play into it. Um, so, you know, what is the evidence base? Uh, how much time do we have? Uh, how much resource do we have in terms of uh, people? Um, how many service users or patients do we, do we want to have through the program? Um, finances. So there's always, always going to be modifications. Um, I guess that, you know, part of my role as a clinician is to always uphold the evidence base. So I'm continually coming back and I'm saying, well, it was done like this. This is what the evidence shows us. You know, we can modify, but we're not changing. We, we have to, this is what we're doing. <laughs> because if we step away from that, you know, we're really going into the unknown. And, you know, I, I don't think we would ever be in the realms of unsafe. You know, that just wouldn't happen. But we know that if we stay as close to the evidence as possible, then we're going to get really good results um, and we're going to be doing things correctly as well. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll come to you in a moment, Will, to find out more about that uh, dietary approach that you use with your patients. Just before I do, Alison, I wondered if you could tell us more about um, how you've applied a, a food first approach to helping patients to achieve remission. Um, you mentioned earlier the very low calorie diets, the shakes, the vegetables. Can you tell us a bit more about what the diet looked like for the participants? Yeah, so it, so in terms of direct, it, it actually very much wasn't a, a food first approach. Now I know as dietitians that that's what we're all we're all trained in, and, and I'll come back to that point in a moment. Um, but for direct, um, it was a total diet replacement, which means that the the liquid meal replacements um, replaced all of the other foods in the diet. So our participants had four meal replacements that were soups and shakes. So four of those per day, 800 calories, um, plenty of fluids, a fiber supplement um, and some sugar-free chewing gum. Um, now saying that we did, you know, if people were struggling, um, they could have some, some non-starchy vegetables alongside. There were kind of individual um, alterations from that point of view, but it was designed to be a total diet replacement. 
Um, now, indirect, we were using a, a commercial structured weight management um, program called, called Counterweight Plus, which was, I should have said, um, you know, even outside of my role in this study, the counterweight dietitians had, had written the program and, and we were following their protocol. Um, and they chosen TDR because of the evidence base behind it and the amount of weight loss. And we were looking, we wanted as many people as possible to lose um, 15 kilograms um, in weight and 24% and achieved that um, at the end of, of one year. Um, but at Newcastle, in our remission studies, we, we actually tend to use a, a, a more of a food-involved approach, I would say. And so we combine meal replacements with, with small vegetable meals, um, which does have, um, for me as a practitioner, um, some advantages in that people, people like to have something to chew. Um, it means people don't need a fiber supplement. They're able to try um, new vegetables, different vegetable recipes, and get used to having vegetables every day. And we've seen, you know, they're smaller studies, but we, we see um, similar rates of remission um, and weight loss um, with the vegetables alongside. Um, that's as far as I've gone in terms of a, of a food-first approach. Um, there are other studies um, that report remissions using, um, so Look Ahead had some remissions, not, not a huge amount, so it's 11% at one year um, with a low-fat diet and some, some meal replacements in there as well. It's, it's hard to compare remission rates between the studies because um, for direct, everyone had had diabetes for less than six years um, because we know from, from bariatric surgery, you're more likely to achieve remission the, the closer you are really to, to diagnosis. Um, and other studies have, have mixed duration. Um, and then Verta Healthcare has reported um, some remissions um, using a, a ketogenic diet. But again, they, you know, some of the participants were still on metformin, they kind of classed that as, as reversal. So it's, it's quite com complex to compare results. The key part of all of this is that, that there are some advantages to the meal replacements and, and the total diet replacement. So it's a complete break from food, which a lot of people actually quite like and find to be a relief. Um, you, you can imagine, you know, or you do imagine if you haven't used it, you would say 800 calories, how on earth can you continue your daily life? And I actually said that when the, the original Newcastle research came out. Um, but most people are absolutely fine within, within the first week, um, will be when they might feel hungry and then, then they settle, settle into it. And it actually gives people um, a chance to, to break habits. So if they would usually sit down in front of the TV and snack, they, they, they know that they're just following the, the shakes. And so they're able to, to break those kind of habits. And then you're rebuilding a diet in food reintroduction. You're building it up from scratch rather than trying to unpick someone's diet um, from, from what they're already doing. Um, and they're safe and effective. So, so there are lots of advantages um, to those. Um, but certainly, you know, the, the key thing to achieve remission is about the level of weight loss. So indirect, the, the more weight people lost, the, the greater the chances of them achieving remission. So for people who lost more than 15 kilograms, they had a 75% chance of achieving remission. It was down to about 5% by the time we got down to the, you know, the kind of 5%, 10, 5% that people would lose in a lifestyle change quite often. So, so what you have to think is, are people, you know, it's about them being able to lose that much weight. However they do it, um, if they can achieve that much weight loss, then, then they have a good chance of achieving remission. 
However, um, it's harder to achieve that level of weight loss with, with just making a few small changes to diet. So you kind of have to do something a bit more significant than that. Um, what you're aiming to do is to get to get the fat out of the liver and pancreas. And I kind of an analogy for direct is when we looked at the levels of fat, the excess fat in the liver was about equivalent to a, to a block of butter um, that you would get in the supermarket. Um, and the, the excess fat in the pancreas was about a tenth of, a, of an individual butter patch, like a tiny amount of fat. Um, so you could, you could get rid of the liver fat in a couple of weeks of a low calorie diet, but it takes longer. It takes a period of weeks. So eight to 12 weeks to get that little bit of fat out of the pancreas. And that seems to be the key to the, the beta cells coming back online if they're able to, um, and being able to make insulin. But, but absolutely, if someone wants to give it a try and, and you're able to support them in whatever, you know, weight loss approach would suit them, as long as they can lose sufficient weight. Um, a good take-home message is, is at least 10 kilograms of weight loss and you have a 64% chance of being in remission at two years um, with short-duration diabetes. Um, so I don't know if Will has anything to add to that, Will, from a, from a food-first point of view or, or experience of using the, the meal replacements. Yeah, I would, you know, I would agree. Um, in my practice and at, at Zyla, depending on our programmes, uh, we either have like a fiber supplement or we have a, a non-starchy vegetable to go along with the TDR. Um, it really varies depending on the person as to what suits the individual um, and also depends on, on the contract and the program that we offer. But it's great that, you know, I think it's going into something like this, it's really important to have eyes on the long-term goal. And I think if we're, if we're enabling people to, if they are removing food completely, making sure that there is that psychology behind it and identifying those behaviors and those habits and thinking about how we can change those once we start food reintroduction. But if there is food running alongside that first stage of total diet replacement, then making sure that it is building those healthy habits. So it's getting your, your non-starchy vegetables, working towards five a day as a minimum, um, you know, making sure that they're appearing at every meal, that people are developing those skills in cooking or meal planning to support them so that once they do lose that weight, they're able to maintain that weight loss. It's, it's two very separate journeys. It's your weight loss is one game, but weight loss maintenance is a completely different game. And I'm sure clinicians will experience that no matter what method of weight management they use. It's just that when we use this method of intervention, it is too, you know, it's, it's drastic, um, life-changing. Well, I think it's really important to emphasize that when, when we're using the, the low calorie diets or, or the total diet replacement, it's part of a structured program and everyone focuses on it, but that's actually, it's the shortest part, isn't it? And kind of the, what comes afterwards is a gradual reintroduction to eating normal foods and getting to grips with portion sizes and what to eat. Um, and then the support to keep weight off as well um, afterwards. So people, you know, a, a low calorie diet on its own is never going to help people to, to lose and, and maintain weight. And we saw that with the, 
the studies, um, you know, the early studies where they were a standalone intervention, people haven't learned anything from it and, and we just put the weight back on. So the support afterwards is, is really, really key. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Alison, how, for how long were you following up with the participants and what was the process of weaning them off the total diet replacement onto normal food? Yeah, I like that idea of weaning weaning them uh, of the liquid diet. So, every, I mean, everyone was followed up um, in the RCT stage of direct, which was the, the original study. That was two-year follow-up for everybody. Um, so, so when they started the total diet replacement and, and they'd had, you know, a good chance to prepare for that beforehand, kind of clear the decks at home, that kind of thing, um, we would we would see them a, a week afterwards, um, just because that's that's when people are more likely to get any you know hunger and tiredness, and so just to, to support them to keep going, um, and then fortnightly after that, and and within direct people were on the, that phase for twelve to twenty weeks, they could choose to extend. Um, and the average time on it was actually 17 weeks. And I think that's quite a good indication that most people found it really manageable. Um, but when they opted to come off it, we would we would reintroduce one meal at a time. So so every fortnight they would they would take off a shake, add in a, a balanced meal. So around about four to five hundred calories with some protein, some veg, um, some higher fiber starch. Um, and and then some some kind of fruit snacks um, alongside as well, um, and so it was gradual. So that because actually the food reintroduction part is often the time that is most anxiety promoting for people. So they've done great. You know, once they're settled into the low calorie diet, it's fairly straightforward with the support around them. Um, people lose the weight, but it's when it comes back to making decisions around food, going back to normal foods. Uh, there's quite a you know a lot of support actually. Um, required around that and once people were through that stage um, and into weight maintenance um, we then went to monthly support after that for the remainder of the two years so seen every month in their DP practice. Will do you sorry I I was just going to add on there I forgot to mention so so that was the RCT Um, Will mentioned the five-year results earlier and so there is an extension to direct that's still been ongoing um, and I think they are just about getting to database lock with that, where they'll then um, deal with any data queries, make sure that everything's in order, and then they'll do the analysis. So it should be um, early next year, I would think, that the, the five-year results um, are published for, for the follow-up. So that's just the, the intervention participants were, were offered the opportunity, um, and that's been every three months at their GP practice. Great. Well, we'll look forward to seeing those results, hopefully early in the new year. Um, Will, I just wanted to ask you, do you follow a similar pattern in clinical practice uh, in terms of following up with your patients? And um, do you notice that people's weight tends to change when they reintroduce foods? And and if so, can you talk us through that pattern? Yes, absolutely. We, We try and follow it as closely as possible. So making sure that the support for the patients is at the beginning so when they start the TDR um, and even a bit before that in preparation so making sure I love that idea of clearing the decks it really is it's it's get ready because you know this is going to be pretty intense um, and then again once people tend to start the TDR they you know you're either on or you're off um, it's very few people that you know once they're sort of two weeks in um, struggle um, it's almost like a, people describe it to me as a very clear mindset. You know, 
it's very binary, the decision-making. It's a yes or a no, um, which simplifies the whole thing. It, it makes it quite simple to adhere to. And then you put in the support again around food reintroduction. So again, a preparation part, you know, let's think about what we're going to do, which is going to be your first meal, what's it going to look like, how are you going to prepare it, and then how are we going to build that, the, the gentle weaning, I love that as well. Um, and then sort of all that, that troubleshooting that sort of, because essentially you open the floodgates to decision making. Um, and it's, you know, after not doing it for about three months, it can be quite overwhelming. So it's making sure that you are prepared for that, not only in terms of, uh, you know, preparing foods and getting ready, but also from a mental point of view, it's, you know, uh, what, what are your values and what are they driving your behaviours and habits, you know? what tools are you using to manage your stress levels? Is your sleep good? Are you getting a decent night's sleep so you can wake up refreshed and, and follow those decisions, behaviors that you want to? Um, and then sort of continuing that for the, for the, we do year long programs. So from three months where you start reintroducing, it's a process of getting all those tools in your toolbox to help you lead um, and empower. What we do is we empower our patients to self-manage long-term. Um, so so it's, it's a very holistic approach, you know, we're thinking about food, nutrition, um, but also psychology, behavior change and, and physical activity. In terms of the weight loss, um, absolutely. Whatever intervention we always see a rebound at the end of weight loss. Um, that's completely normal and natural. And it's really important that we acknowledge that from the outset to say, look, this is what our journey is gonna look like. There's gonna be a tremendous amount of weight loss and then it's gonna creep on a little bit. But the aim is to limit that weight regain as much as possible. Some people will continue to lose weight after total diet replacement, albeit at a slower rate, um, but some people might regain weight as well. And it's, it's just about acknowledging that it's normal, it's okay. We've got ways to, to work with that. Um, you know, I always say, and our, our clinical psychologist will always talk about the fact that it is never a straightforward journey. We've got... Um, We've got a pitch that we use, which is you've got point A and point B, and there's a big squiggly line in between it. And sometimes you go forward, sometimes you go backwards. It's just about acknowledging that that is a path for any type of behavior change. And it's okay. Sometimes if things aren't going well, we just need to step back and take a look at the bigger picture. Definitely. And I think a lot of dietitians listening will really resonate with that. It's um, very much a long-term path, isn't it, to achieving remission and, and keeping the weight off. So um, on that note, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the controversies that perhaps people tend to associate when they think about um, total diet replacements, for example, and achieving remission of type 2 diabetes. So um, Perhaps, Alison, you, you touched upon fibre earlier. You talked about using a fibre supplement. Um, uh, also, I think lots of people listening might be concerned about muscle loss. Are you able to, to talk us through those areas, Alison? And then I'll come on to Will with a few other areas. Yeah, sure. So, so in terms of the, the fibre, 
um, when you're when you're making a liquid meal replacement, you're going to struggle to get you know the, the kind of fiber that we we would look for for gut health. Um, and so if if there is some fiber in there, but but usually around about ten grams, they vary you know depending on the product you're using and the number of products per day. Um, so within direct, we had um, an um, ispagula husk um, fiber supplement. Um, to go alongside that or within the other Newcastle University studies, um, we would use um, the vegetables. Um, one of the, the main side effects that you get with the, the total diet replacement is constipation. Um, and so the fiber supplement is almost like a preemptive measure along with plenty of fluids. So, so about two and a quarter liters of fluids a day. Um, and, a, and a bit of physical activity, a bit of movement um, to, to reduce the likelihood that people would experience constipation. So, so thinking about fibre is important. Um, I've been asked about fibre from the point of and, and things like um, prebiotics, probiotics, thinking about um, the gut microbiome. Um, if we're being, you know, perfectly honest, a, you know, meal replacements are, are they're an ultra processed food. There's no getting away from that, but they're, they're a very effective means to an end and you're on them for a short period of time. And if that enables you to then um, reintroduce some positive dietary habits, actually the gut microbiome is going to respond, um, you know, really quite rapidly to, to the positive changes that you're making there. I think you need to remember a lot of people come into this and they they aren't already eating, you know, a, a really well-balanced diet. So, so it's what you get to um, in terms of fiber. And obviously when we come to food reintroduction, the focus is on the, you know, the higher fiber um, carbs and the um, and, and fruit and vegetables as well. Um, so that would be the fiber one. From a, from a muscle loss point of view, the products have to have a minimal, a minimum amount of protein. So they are regulated. Um, and that's to help ensure that people aren't losing um, muscle mass, because obviously if you lose muscle mass, that has implications in terms of your, your metabolic rate um, and being able to, to keep the weight off um, as well afterwards. So, so the studies that we didn't look at body composition within direct, we did in some of the earlier studies. Um, and there's not an undue loss of muscle mass in terms of what you would expect from things like the support of tissue around the fat mass. Um, so, so yeah, so that's it. Um, once you get down to very low calorie diets where you're looking at about 400 calories a day down to that level, there is a greater loss of muscle mass compared to a low calorie diet. Um, direct was a low calorie diet. So it was, it was between eight and 900 calories a day. Um, so yeah, so so it wouldn't be wouldn't be an undue concern, but that's you know where physical activity comes into things afterwards as well, um, in terms of keeping metabolic rate up, being able to to build muscle mass. But you would probably you know if someone was diagnosed with frailty and already had low muscle mass, it might not be the intervention that you would recommend um, for that person. Will I'm not sure if you if you have anything further to add. I, w I was just thinking about the fiber. Um, we find that a lot of people that come onto these types of programs, you know, these, we know that the, the recommendations for fiber, probably the majority of the population aren't reaching that recommendation in the first place. So for a lot of people, when they come onto this type of program, it's the first time they put fiber in spotlight. It's never really been a focus before. And this is usually the first time in a long while that they're actually getting decent amounts of fiber. Um, 
so yes, whilst there, there can be that concern around not getting enough fibre, I'd almost be tempted to say probably, a lot of people are probably getting more fibre than they were doing. Um, but definitely, you know, the supplements, the, the non-starchy vegetables that go along with that and building those habits are super important. That's interesting. I think that is a misconception. Like you said, people say, what about the fiber? What about the fiber? But actually, like you said, um, it could even be that on the program, they're actually having more fiber in their diet than before. Um, Will, I wanted to ask you about the nutritional adequacy of using a total diet replacement product. Is it possible to have a nutritionally complete diet when using shakes? Uh, Absolutely. So um, all the, the total diet replacement products are regulated and they come under the European Food Standards Agency regulation which is very strict Um, so it's ensuring it has a certain amount of protein all your vitamins your minerals um, fatty acids Um, so and this is one of the things that is so important that we emphasize to people when we use these is that you have to have a certain amount in order for it to be nutritionally complete so whether that is four products or, or three products, um, you know, if you're not able to get those during the day, then we need to think about ways of doing that. Because believe it or not, there are some people who will go through this type of program and because of ketosis, they will lose their appetite. And if they're supposed to be taking four a day, they might turn around and say, well, you know, I'm not really that hungry, so I'll just take three or sometimes just take two um and we and we say no you know it's it, you need to keep these you need to keep four it's nutritionally complete it protect those muscles for the long-term um long-term weight management um so yes absolutely stringently regulated they, they have to be a certain level that's really helpful to know thank you and Alison, i wondered if there are certain groups of patients where perhaps a a total diet replacement approach is contraindicated. I'm particularly thinking in terms of patients, perhaps you have an eating disorder like binge eating disorder. So are there certain groups of patients that you wouldn't recommend using this approach with? So certainly anyone who has an an active eating disorder or a history um, of any eating disorder, um, this was a contraindication in direct. Now, what I would say, I get um, I get asked a lot, and um, I, I I know you're not averse to um, a bit of debate and controversy um, on the podcast, Harriet. But there's there's actually been a piece um, in in the BDA um, Dietetics Today, um, which was supposedly a practice piece talking about the logic. That, that a total diet replacement of this type would lead to binge eating disorder. Um, I would class that as an opinion piece. Um, and there's, there's actually, um, you know, there's, there are, there's a systematic review from 2015, which I can, can make available, which looked at um, the evidence base around binge eating. And, and so that people who had a binge eating disorder before a low calorie or a very low calorie diet, actually saw a significant improvement in binge eating um, during during weight loss. Um, and that when they when they pooled all the evidence together, although there were some some mixed um, results in individual studies, they looked at 11 studies and the overall um, 
effect was that um, a total diet replacement or a very low calorie diet um, didn't cause or didn't lead to binge eating disorder. So it's one of those things where it's kind of we have to go with the evidence base. And as logical as it might seem to you, actually, that is not what specific studies um, looking at this have shown. Um, There's also a study called Tempo in Australia. Now, Tempo is really interesting. So they compared rapid weight loss um, with more gradual weight loss. And and they also looked at um, incidents of binge eating as well. So, so similar from the binge eating point of view, there was, you know, it didn't didn't increase or lead to, to binge eating. Um, but from the point of view of the rate of weight loss, because that's just popped into my head as something that also comes up um, quite a lot. And, and it's that thing we were taught where, you know, you should lose weight slowly and gradually. And that's the best way to keep it off. Um, that's also a bit of dogma that's not backed up by the evidence. So so Tempo demonstrated really nicely that. Um, the people who lost weight rapidly compared to the people who lost it gradually, um, there was no difference. Now, the bad news was that everyone regained some weight, um, but there was no difference in terms of the rate of weight regain. Um, and actually, when when in weight maintenance studies, the, the, the first few months, the more, the more weight that people lose in the first few months of a weight loss attempt, the more the weight they tend to keep off longer term. Um, that they're further down from their baseline. So so it's a bit of, you know, if, if we're still saying that, it, it possibly it's time to revisit the evidence and, and then have a look from the point of view of both of those. Um, but certainly, you know, in clinical programs, there's, there's a lot of great work going on to work with um, psychology teams. And Will, you might be able to, to comment on that in terms of in, in clinical practice, because um, I know you mentioned your psychologists earlier. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, if, and this is why it's so important to have support on this type of intervention, um, because it really does need that clinical eye to make sure that it is successful. Um, you know, if, if someone were to go and buy this off the shelf in a local supermarket and do it themselves, then one of my concerns would be that, you know, it would maybe play into that yo-yo dieting, um, because it is such an extreme intervention, um, which is why I've said before, and I keep on banging on about it, but it is, it's the psychology and the behavior change that wraps around is so important to have that throughout. Um, otherwise, you know, we, 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 we're creatures of habit, aren't we? Um, and it's, we know, we all know how difficult it is to change. Change is inherently hard. Um, so having that throughout is really supports the service users and patients to, to get where they're going to. Um, just to mention as well that with, um, with these programs, there are, there are quite a few contraindications. So whether it's EGFR less than 30, uh, active liver disease, um, heart disease, um, you know, there's, is quite strict as to who would be suitable for this type of intervention. And we, we know with weight loss, there is no silver bullet. So, you know, if, if I were to have someone in my freelance practice say, who had uh, disordered eating, a uh, history of eating disorder, then this might be an intervention that I would use, but maybe I, I might consider other methods as well. Um, maybe going down a more intuitive approach. Um, but, you know, it, again, if, if someone, 
turned up and said, this is what I want to do. Yes, I've got a history of, of eating disorder, but I'm recovered now. I'd like to explore this as an option. And I think we need to give an informed, we have to have an informed discussion about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely. No, thank you very much for, for covering some of what I think will be common questions amongst our listeners. So we're just coming to the end of the episode and I just have a couple more questions um, before you both go. So I guess a million dollar question, this is part two. We, we spoke to Adrian, um, Dwayne and in the last episode all about um, whether you know remission is, is realistic in a research setting. But from your dietetic perspectives, do you think that achieving di- diabetic remission is realistic in clinical practice for other dietitians who are perhaps listening? Alison, what would you say to that? Um, in terms of clinical practice, absolutely. And I think one of the really lovely things about direct is all the, is all the lovely stories that we hear um, from people, you know, whether they're going through a program like, like Will's able to offer with, with Siler and in practice or... Um, some people, you know, just just on their own with a food-based approach and activity managed to, to achieve diabetes remission. That's absolutely lovely. Um, from a practitioner point of view, um, again, you know, if you're, think- if you're thinking about a low-calorie diet approach, are you able to offer the follow-up and the support um, over that, that period of time, especially thinking about maintenance and, as Will mentioned, you know, it doesn't just come down and stay down weight. There are all of those factors. We haven't cracked weight loss maintenance yet by any means. Um, but are you able, you know, to offer offer the support? Um, but absolutely, it is now. You know, I think dietitians, it's lovely to see as well. Dietitians are, are at the forefront of this. It's bringing diet back into the centre of, of diabetes care. And I would say, you know, not everyone achieves diabetes remission. Um, some people, um, their, their beta cells don't recover the function, even if they lose enough weight. But actually, if we're able to support them to, to lose some weight and, and keep the changes going, there's advantages for those people as well. And it's just, it's really lovely. From a, It's very rewarding from a practitioner point of view and also um, from, a, from a patient point of view as well. So, so I say definitely. And I think dietitians, you know, need to have that 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 seat um not just at the table but really at the forefront and, and leading this and that seems to be what's happening um in clinical practice right. will i wanted to ask you if you have any advice to other dietitians who perhaps work in diabetes and are wondering whether they could go about setting up a service to help their patients to achieve remission uh, what would you say to those dietitians listening i would say um get yourself really familiar with the evidence base get all your stakeholders on board um, because you're going to need a team to do this. Um, You're going to need doctors, nurses, dietitians, psychologists. If you've got exercise um, specialists in there, that's fantastic. Um, And it's, it's about just making sure that everything is in that service to be able to sustain that weight loss. Um, and having that conversation at diagnosis as well, you know, this is really exciting for people who are just being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. We wouldn't have been talking about this a few years ago, but now we've got another option that is lifestyle management. You know, it's, it's not a uh, sort of, you know, you, you go on to your diabetes medications and you just go through them all. No, you've got another choice here, which is really empowering and highly motivating. But then let's not forget all those people who have already had 
diabetes for more than six years, um, you know, remission is fantastic. It's, it's a highly motivating goal, but there are so many benefits alongside of healthy lifestyle interventions and plus or minus weight loss. Um, you know, it, whether that is improved um, stress management or sleep or body image, um, I think it's really important to acknowledge all those other benefits that come along with shining focus on health. Um, remission, we know that a good chunk of people are going to be able to achieve that, but not everybody. But let's not just throw the baby out of the bathwater. Um, it's all it's all positive and there's, there's lots of wins to be had for everybody here. Yes, I just want, was going to add to that, Will, and just say you mentioned those conversations up front. They're really, really important in terms of managing expectations and, and kind of that, you know, the conversation around this is the evidence base. What we don't know in terms of, you know, longer term, although we, we will we will find that out as the, the evidence continues to grow. Um, and there's a good chance of remission, you know, but but not guaranteed. So what are all the other benefits of, of weight loss as well? Yes, you you both mentioned the importance of a patient-centered approach. I think it's probably important to mention just before we finish, I presume there'll be patients who perhaps for whatever reason don't want to take this approach of a total diet replacement or a very low calorie diet. Is that that something that you both see in your work? Because you must have to have a degree of motivation in order to follow quite a long-term dietary change. Yeah, you do. And it, and it's not for everyone. And I, you know, certainly within my clinic, I think as dietitians, we can, you know, you start a discussion, you can, you, you soon find out if something's for someone and, and if there isn't, this is not an expectation on anybody by any means. Um, you know, nobody should feel obliged to, to aim for diabetes remission, but it's, it's, they're very motivating conversations for an awful lot of people. And when people, you know, it's not for them or they, they, you know, they feel they would want to lose that much weight. It's kind of like, okay, well, you know, what, what, what suits you and what, what, what can we, what can we look out for you? So yeah, absolutely. Not, you know, not something to be, to be impressed on people at all. And actually in direct, when I screen people who were rather half-hearted about it, you know, most of the time we came to the conclusion that this possibly wasn't, wasn't going to be the, the right thing for them. Because, you know, it is a big ask. But if you have the motivation, then, then you know, you can, you can get through it um, and, and hopefully come out more positively on the other side. Brilliant. Well, I think that that rounds up the episode very nicely. Um, So thank you so much, both of you, for your time this evening. I think this information that you've shared will be really invaluable to other dietitians, particularly those working with patients with diabetes. So um, a huge thank you to both our guests and our guest social media handles will be linked in the show notes for you to take a look at. A huge thank you to New Outra for making this podcast possible. If you do enjoy listening to the Dietitian Cafe, please consider subscribing or leaving a review or a five-star rating so that our podcast can reach even more healthcare professionals. You can also follow New Outra on social media at New Outra across all platforms to keep up to date with the podcast and to hear the latest updates on medical nutrition. Thank you very much for listening and our next episode will be coming out soon.